You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I, I missed the uh, service planning meeting this last Monday because um, the others had a chance to get away and go on a really great retreat over there at Chimney Rock and had no plans, no plans at all, just prayer, and it was a really great time. And, um, but apparently the Holy Spirit decided to plan the service anyways, uh, because, um, uh, Timothy, uh, was so, uh, apt, I guess, and, and the Holy Spirit was so appropriate in planning that we would sing hymns, uh, today, I think. Um, you know, in the South, I've come to understand, and then beyond that respect, um, that God never does the same thing twice, and we should be aware of the unique story and the fingerprint of things that God does in different areas and times, and we live in the Bible Belt. And, uh, and I didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, and so I've never been to a church service I wasn't excited about. I've never been forced to go to church. Um, I've never had negative feelings about church, but the more I've spent time um, in, in just humanity, it's not about the Bible Belt, right, is that um, in places that there are church, there are people, and with people there is hurt. And I've come to understand um, that with all the good things that have been established here in Greenville as a very unique spiritual place, there's also been a lot of harm that's been done, and I've had to learn how to respect that and to pray through that um, and understand that God um, ultimately doesn't um, erase our past so much as he redeems it. And, he, and, and um, he, he, he brings us through long and hard seasons in and outside of church, and we look back, if only to realize one crucial perspective thing, is that he was always there. He was always there. And... Um, and, and so this, this passage, you know, we're coming to the end of this series, and it's, it's the end of really Jacob's life, and there's, there's a perspective when you get pulled back. Like, like a wise person, I don't remember who it was, but it was a great little parable I heard one time that says that, um, that life is only understood looking backwards. But we have to live it forward. That's the problem, right? That's the problem is that life, life seems like it only really gets that perspective when you pull back and look backwards into the past. But unfortunately, you have to wake up today and live it forwards, and that's, and that's the problem. And so, you know, chapter 32, if you want to go there, Genesis 32, closing up this sermon and the next one will kind of close up the meaning of, of Jacob's life and what we're supposed to kind of get away. It's a bit of a, a coming home uh, for Jacob. And, um, and, and, and how many of you guys know that um, when it is that we turn, we turn away from, our, um, away from our sin, away from our own personal choices, and we have to turn back to God. Sometimes we do have to turn back to the past. And, uh, and, the, and, and, and following Jesus is not an escape from the past, it's a redemption of the past. And we're having to look at hard things and having to look at bad decisions, and we're going to have to look at 20 years, let's say, of things that we're going to have to find. And so Jesus, or Jacob rather, following Jesus is following him home and, and having to face some of these, these hard things in his past. Um, so uh, many of you guys you know, know my story, I was, I was saved partially through Flirt to Convert, and then also partially through the seeker-friendly church movement, which was so great. And so I, I played a lot of the Chubby Bunny and, and a lot of Freeze Tag and probably um, games that after the 90s we learned were not so good of an idea, you know, that was playing, playing the dark or whatever. Um, but it wasn't the church's fault. It was, it was totally my fault um, that uh, during, you know, a, a good amount of the beginning kind of chapters and pages of my walk with Jesus, um, my uh, false assumption, my uh, false belief was that um, in, in coming to Christ and following Jesus, that the purpose Jesus found me and the purpose Jesus saved me um, was to be awesome so that Jesus could be awesome by association. You know what I'm talking about? So um, we had a really big church and really big churches have really great people and really great leaders. And, um, and I, I was very, in retrospect and looking back on the past, very uh, fascinated with the awesomeness that happens in church. You know, there was guys up there that have, you ever just see these guys and, and their hair just seems to defy gravity? Like, you're just like, how is your hair still doing that? I don't know how you smell that good. Uh, you smell so good. And when you're around you, I just want to sniff more. Back in the early O's, you know, it's like the more straps and rainbows and, and cool like headband things and watches and all the kind of leather that was going on. It's just like, boy, this guy must know Jesus. He's really awesome, you know? And, uh, and this is a big, awesome party. And 
there's a lot of awesome people that you're gonna meet, you know? And, and, and I do think that God gives us to wisdom and, and by his spirit leads us to beauty. And, and those things are, are beautiful, powerful things. Um, when they get ahead of things like brokenness and grace and repentance, then the church just becomes, instead of a place of, of, of grace, it becomes a place of awesomeness. And, and that's a tricky spot to be, you know, when, when, it's about, when it's about being awesome. And it's all, all done, I think, in a sincere gesture is that, you know, we, you know, seeker-friendly movement and really our modern church movement comes out of places that have churches that are really weird, and, and you're like, for goodness sakes, I mean, can we just not be weird for a minute? I mean, can we not just make uncomfortable eye contact with people, you know, or whatever it is? You know, that's what the church movement has been about, I think, in the last 20 or 30 years. It's like, can we just not be weird? You know, can we be relevant? You know, can we, can we speak the language, you know? But in the middle of all that, you know, you wonder, you wonder, you know, is, is, um, is the message that we're sending that the reason we're following Jesus is to go from Instead of going from, from, from lost to saved, is it, is it going from uncool to cool? Or from unput together to really put together? Or from smelling bad to smelling great? Or from having hair that's less vertical to making your hair more vertical? Or whatever the, you know, the false, the false you know, salesman thing is. And, um, but God's good and his grace is good. It keeps on chasing us. It keeps on wanting to reveal who he really is, like what his character really is about. And um, over, over 5, 10, 20 years, you know, you're going to get married. Um, you know, you're going to... Um, you know, get a boyfriend, girlfriend, break up. You're going to get in ministry. Ministry is going to fall apart. You're going to meet um, lots of different people. And two different things, I think, will happen in the course of time in church. And it doesn't matter what denomination or if you're in the Bible Belt or anything else. Um, and the first thing is, is that um, you're going to find out that after you follow Jesus, unawesome stuff keeps happening to you. Have you figured this one out, right? So, like, that's one of the things is that, you know, like, you have people that you really believe, man, like, if somebody's going to get something bad, it certainly wouldn't be them. They're faithful, and, and, and they've always put you first, and they pray. And you, and you find out that nobody, nobody is too awesome to experience unawesome things. And, and it rains on the sinners and the saints, and life has, has wind and storms and rains, and it's a matter of time. There's no immunization from unawesome things that happen to you. And so, um, you know, like 10, 20, 30 years, you know, um, you know, the, the very pastor of, of our church, uh, Mark Beeson, I've talked about, passed away from cancer, you know, this last year at 50-some uh, years old. And that, that was the end of his road. You know, you, you, you go through a couple of decades and you, and you find people that are faithfully following Jesus and their spouse is not faithfully following with them. And, and any amount of awesomeness or faith, none of that stuff keeps you from that kind of a pain. And the second thing that you, that you find is you follow Jesus and do life with people is that the awesome people aren't as awesome as you think. And uh, actually, they're spending a ton of energy trying to be awesome. And none of it's God. And uh, a lot of it's ego. And you're finding out that those awesome people um, are, are more conceited and self-centered and egotistical and, and narcissistic than you think. And you realize at the end of it, if you're lucky, that really there is no, it's all a myth, there really is no such thing as awesomeness in anybody. Nobody's awesome. I came to tell you, I came here to, to tell you, maybe save you a few tears today, your awesome list is going to get smaller until it goes to zero because nobody's awesome. And if they're, you know, but maybe they're lucky enough to find out they're weak and find out that he's awesome. So at the same time as you're realizing people aren't awesome, he's sending you people that have been weakened by him. And they have lost, you know, friends in war. Like people that have really experienced like the throes of life and, and seen through it, followed Jesus through it. They, they, you know, they're sitting by the bedside, and they saw the last heartbeat of their child. And none of that awesomeness matters at all in that. Only grace through the power of Jesus, only grace matters. And so uh, I want to read this passage as we kind of lean into this last chapter, season, little episode of Jacob's life here. But it's in, um, it's in 2 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen, famous verse. Um, Paul is kind of pontificating here in this letter to, to the church of Corinth, second letter, and um, he's, he's reminiscing about this thorn in the side, and it really doesn't matter what the thorn in the side is. We just know it's not awesome. Um, and, and, and so he is commending this church, and he, I think he'd speak to us this morning to give us really a theology of power. Like, power just means how does stuff get done? And every country and every individual is answering that question with how they live. Like, how does stuff really get done? I mean, what really matters that's getting done? And ultimately, how does... 
How does the stuff that matters most get done actually? And so Paul's giving this theology, I think, of power, and he's saying this is, this is what he's understood about power. He says, my grace, he says, is sufficient for you. This is God speaking to him. And he says, God spoke to me, and, and he's telling me that my power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. Um, he, he, he's saying that, that the vertical hair and the incredible music and the anthematic movements and the branding is actually not only not encapsulating the power of God, actually it sometimes competes and contends with it. Because actual power is, is not made by human hands. Actual power is found by human weakness. And, and it takes years, and, and it says, he says in another letter, he says, you know, for the Jews they wanted a sign, and for the Gentiles they wanted wisdom, but what was foolish to God was wise to man, and what's wise to man is foolish to God. And maybe it'll take a couple of years, and maybe it'll take a couple of scripture times, and maybe it'll take whatever it takes, but ultimately God's trying to get us to this revelation of power. How does stuff get done? How does stuff get done? It won't be in the plans and the boasting, it'll be in the weakness Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. So in other words, not only is he saying that, 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 that power, comes, um, power comes through weakness, it actually comes by weakness is what he's saying. He's saying that, that, power, that, that weakness isn't only the vehicle to graduation into power. Weakness is the power. Being in weakness, living in a weak space, much in contrary with what the world will say and what a lot of church will say, that the power is not found by going around or even through, but living in the weakness is where the power exists. It's in the bedside next to the spouse. It's in the prayer time waiting for the prodigal son to come home. It's in the depth of the sexual addiction, night in, night out, trying to wait on God. That is actually not the vehicle passed through to the power. It's where the power lives. And so, so his, his hypothesis here is he's saying, he's saying Veronica's up here and, and Veronica's in marching band and I don't think Veronica's been to seminary. Have you been to seminary, dear? Have you, do you preach? You wanna come up later? Um, how many of you guys felt the spirit, just by Veronica coming up in faith, telling her open-handed story, vulnerably and weakly, felt the power of God just now. More than some of these slick preachers, right? So what is the huge ambush that God has, has, has put before us? You could have two groups, and the one group, the small group gets together, and the group is all about, man, this is what I know, and this is what I've done, and these are the people that I've talked to, and this is the revelation that I have. And everybody's being awesome. And you can have that group you can meet for six months or a year and they're just talking about being awesome and being awesome and why they're awesome and why, you know, it's a humble brag, but it's still pretty awesome. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, in this band and I do that for Jesus. And, and again, it's not, it's not a false humility, right? It's not saying that strength doesn't exist. It's just asking which strength do we trust in? If you had another group though, and, in, and instead of, of running from weakness, what Paul is saying is if they were to boast in weakness, you'd have a completely different result. Man, my marriage is falling apart. Did you go rock climbing last week? Yeah, you went rock climbing. That's awesome. So it's not about some things are awesome and some things are weak. We all have awesome and weak things. The question is, what are you trusting in though? Are you trusting in the awesomeness or trusting in the weakness? When you are asked how you are, are you leading with your awesomeness or are you gonna lead with your weakness? That's the decision. Paul's saying, if you're smart, you go the other way. Paul is saying, Paul is saying, actually, I don't even just suffer weakness. I don't just endure weakness. I delight in weakness. And it's not a false humility. Actually, it's a realization of reality because weakness is not just the place we go to get power. Weakness is the place we live in to have power. This is where the power happens. And this group here, compared to that group over there that's boasting in weakness, that's talking about their struggles, it's talking about their questions and their doubts. And yeah, they know a lot. And yeah, they've studied a lot. And yeah, they know the scriptures, but they, they never allow what they know to stop them from realizing they don't know a lot of things. And, and Paul was not a dumb dude. 
But he's smart enough to know in all of his, like, circumcised on the eighth day, pedigree this, Jewish that, knows the Torah frontwards and back, doesn't mistake his smarts for God's power and refuses to put his smarts in the way of what God wants to do in his life. And so he's not leading with his strength. He's leading with his weakness. Uh, you know, a, 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 a father, for example, he's saying a, a father has, has a choice, right? He's going to live in the boardroom or he's going to live in the living room. And one of those two rooms will make him weaker. One of those two rooms is less controlled. One of those two rooms means he's got to get down on his knees and not have control. He's got to live in a confusing, hard, unfruitful season over here. And he's got a choice of where he's going to live. And Paul's saying, if he wants power, he better get on the floor. That's where the power is. That's where the gospel is. This is what he's saying. He's, he's, he's completely up, up, uphanding, upholding our paradigm of power. And he's saying power is where the weakness is, and weakness is where the power is. All right, so Jacob, 32, verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God came to meet him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. He named the place Mehanim. Okay, so um, the last time that Jacob spoke to God was 20 years ago. It was when he was in the desert with his head on a rock, and um, he named this one area that was used to be called Luz, which means nowhere, he calls it Bethel because it's the place that God met him. It's the gate of God. He now has just fast forwarded 20 years of life, has not engaged with God whatsoever in the last 20 years. He returns and realizes that God is with him and has a new name for God. Did you catch it? It's right there in verse two. He's not saying that this is the place where God has a gate. He says this is the place where God has a camp. And so what he's saying is, what happens is, 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 is we, we find God and, and finding God doesn't always mean following him and time and life will compound on us so that we find God and often drift from him, right? This is how we are as sheep. We find and drift and we wander. And then 20 years goes by and we, we have nothing in our hands but, but brokenness and empty promises and broken and deferred hope. And so finally we come to our senses to turn back to God. And what do we realize that when we come back to God, is that he's there, and here's the point. It's not just that he was there when we left and there when we returned. It's that what he's always been there. That's the revelation that happens after 20 years of following Jesus, is that even when we're not paying attention to him, he's paying attention to us. Even when we're not present with him, he's been present with us. And God doesn't live in our distractions and live in our addictions and our abuse and live in, in our sin and our depravity, but what? He has an Eno, and he camps with us. And he's been with us at every single turn. So this is what Jacob realizes, is that when he turns back home, it's not that he ever left God and now he's returning to God, it's that God had always followed him wherever he went. It wasn't just a gate of invitation, it was a household tabernacle that he camped with you, that he has his tent and he's camping with you and he's right there and you didn't know it, but he's, ever, he's, he's always been close to you. So Jacob goes ahead and he sends these messengers ahead of him and he's very concerned right now because it's one thing to steal, you know, a couple sheep and a couple oxen from Laban, you know, your, your boss. It's another thing to steal the birthright and the blessing from your brother and then leave him high and dry. And it stole everything, the whole livelihood that Esau ever had and left him there. He's got heck to pay, right? So he's going to go home to this place, Edom, which is named after Esau. Esau is the father of the Edomite nation, verse four. And he instructs his messengers before he gets there, do some reconnaissance, man. I need to know how hot this water is about to be. It's about to be pretty bad is what he's assuming, right? So this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau, the servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. And I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats and male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor, hesed, I might find favor or love in Esau's eyes. Okay, so, um, so, when, so Jacob has spent 20 years wandering and he turns and faces his past and finds the Lord, that the Lord has always been with him. And he's going to have enough faith. He's a mixed bag. He's got a little fear and a little faith. Anybody here have a little bit of faith, but also a little bit of fear in him today, right? So we can relate to this. So he's got to hedge his bets. And so what's, what Jacob is doing is he's, 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 he's taking um, his circumstance, facing the Lord and facing his past, and in engaging his past and really engaging his sin backwards, what he does is he projects and he throws his strength out as far as he can. He takes all the things that he's had, his cattle and his oxen and his blessing and all the stuff and his wives and his kids, and he's saying, I'm going to look my past in the eye and my sin in the eye, and I'm going to throw my strength at it. See that? He's taking all of his stuff, and he's going, I want my strength to go ahead of me. 
because as Michael Scott said, I don't just want you to love me or fear me. I want you to fear how much you love me. And, and I'm going to put this stuff out here and maybe I can earn some, some fear from, from Esau. Maybe I can earn a little bit of, of love. I'll take a little bit of love. I'll take a little bit of respect. I'll take whatever it is, but I'm going to throw my strength. I'm going to lead with my strength. I'm not going to show him my vulnerability or my weakness. I'm going to throw my strength at him and see if it can get me some favor in his eyes. So what's your, what's your super talent? When you go in a new room and you're going to go meet people, we all have that little, is it the name drop? Like you knew somebody that you're just going to, because you're associated with somebody or, you know, are, are, are you a funny guy? You know, some of us, we go into a new room. We want to make sure they know we're strong, right? They want to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and we don't need anything from anybody. And so I just know since I've been 15, I can just spin a joke and, and, and joke and, you know, or, or are we the wise, quiet, silent type, you know? And, and, you know, it's like the wisdom is in the abundance of not speaking or whatever that is. Like, you know, we all have our little PR move of when we get into the new room, right? But the counselor is telling us that every new room, we're actually not living in the presence of that room. We're actually living from the past of the old room. Because what, what we're doing is we're, we're understanding that every present room has the power to hurt us the way the past does. So we, we, we've created, right? Haven't you ever found out that the greatest comedians are always the most depressed, right? Everyone's got that defense mechanism. And you get in there and you've seen somebody else do it. You couldn't see it because you're too blind to notice it, right? But you know, once they get in there, they're, they're compensating stuff. You and me, that's what we do. We get into these new rooms. We're not responding ultimately to the present. We're responding to the past. And Jacob's ultimately not responding to Esau. He's responding to God. He believes that if he can get, if he can get that room to favor him and love him and forgive him, then surely he's worthy of being, having favor and love and forgiveness from the Father. If I can get you to love me and see me as worthy of love and belonging, then that absolutely proves, just by way of committee, that God needs to see me as worthy of love, right? And so this is the dance. This is the dance that, that we're living in, is repeating the past into the future and into the present. And, and in that weak spot, it's when we're weakest that we project the greatest strength It's when we're the most insecure that we're the least vulnerable and we project the best little party trick that we could ever project. I don't know, what do you, you know, it's, it's, you know, sports or it's, or it's a job thing or the school you went to or whatever it is, you're leading out with that thing, with that strength, right? And you're depending, you're ultimately trusting in that thing. It's not that the thing doesn't exist. The order of precedence though is showing that you want to lead with your strength and not with your weakness, so verse six says, and when the messenger returned home, it's Jacob's worst fear. And really our insecurity all the time is that we're about one off comment away from somebody figuring out exactly how rough and ugly we are. That's the, that's the real tension and the anxiety that keeps us moving and motivated and working harder than we ought to and so forth. It's that tension that, that the past is always right at our back. And we've always got to recreate and reprove the past by strengthening up the future by showing the strength that we have, right? So verse six, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you with 400 men. That pass is coming to get you. It's coming to find you. They're gonna find out how poor you are. They're gonna find out how disorganized you are. They're gonna find out, everyone's gonna know how unlovely you are, how weak you are, how disorganized, how dumb you are, how uneloquent you are, how, how fickle you are. They're all gonna find out and that's, that fear is our fear. That's the fear that visits us. He's sending 400 men to get you. Your past isn't fake. It's real, and it's coming to get you. That's what the fear is. So there's 400 men, and this is how, how Jacob responds. This is verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divides his people who are with him in two groups, the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes back to this group and attacks this group, then this group will go free. But if Esau attacks this group, then this group will go free. He's hedging his bets. He's dividing his camps. So the Bible's doing something very specific here with the word connections, right? And that is, the word group here is actually the same word that we read earlier. The word group is the same word for camp. So the Bible is revealing to us and highlighting to us, spotlighting, that, that God, God's name in the beginning of the passage is God's name as God lives with Jacob. He tabernacles with Jacob and God has one camp. He is one camp. He, he's one-hearted. But Jacob, and not just in this episode, but in all the other episodes, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob's heart and really his, his, the way he operates and organizes his life, Jacob has many camps. It's, 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 it's showing the contrast, the juxtaposition between God. God is singular. He is one-hearted. He is single-hearted. He is faithful 
And he is a straight line of integrity and character. And Jacob is a divided heart. Jacob is a divided heart. This was all, all mirrored in the Kings where it said that David was wholehearted. David trusted the Lord with everything that he had. He wasn't perfect, but the, the recollection of David, the history of David is that he was single-hearted, but it said that Solomon, his, his, his son, he was divided in heart. He trusted in God, but he also trusted in many foreign women, and he trusted in chariots, and he trusted in Egypt, and he trusted in gold, and so Solomon's heart was divided. It was a divided heart. And so this is, this is a little Bible, like the lesson in terms of, of, of language of what, what the Bible is trying to teach us about Jacob's deception in that honesty and integrity are not the same thing. Honesty means that you, you tell the, the truth all the time. If the sky is blue, the sky is blue, and if the car is red, the car is red. But integrity is much more than that. Integrity doesn't just mean honesty. Integrity means alignment. It means I do what I say, and I say what I do, and I walk in a straight line. So I watched an awful movie this last week. It was called Aloha. Uh, it has... Um, uh, Emma Stone in it, and it has uh, Rachel McAdams in it, and a um, bunch of good-looking people, but you know what? Not a great movie. And so uh, my favorite director directed Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe, um, and I'm just, and I'm going back to it, I'm like, maybe it's not as bad as I remember. It's 23% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's pretty bad. And, um, and I had this question, apparently it was well-Googled, and it was just, why is this movie so bad? Like, what, 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 what is it that I'm watching here that makes it so universally bad? And the answer was, um, that really struck with me is one of the ladies said, the movie has no integrity. And I was like, well, that's an interesting way to describe a movie because like movies don't have morals to them. And then they broke it down. What do they mean by that? It means it had, had no direction. It was 15 different directions. It was 15 different camps. It didn't know what it wanted to do. So it was just doing all the things and doing nothing all at the same time, right? When you're in a business and there's the mission statement on the wall and you get the handbook out and it says, this is what we stand for. What happens to you in the area of trust, when you work in that business for 30, 60, 90 days, and you realize that what goes on in that business doesn't have nothing to do with that wall. So trust isn't, people aren't trusting you and me because we're telling the truth. They're trusting you and me because we're aligned. Because we do what we say and say what we do. Because we don't just do good things, we do the same thing. Honesty is a lower hanging fruit. Honesty is just telling the truth. Integrity means alignment. It means that when you commit to something, when, you, when it gets hard, you keep going. You don't change directions. And so what he's really saying in these pages about deception is he's saying, Jacob's not a deceiver because he doesn't tell the truth. Jacob's a deceiver because he doesn't know who he is. And most of us, he, you know, he's saying, if you were a movie, it would have 26 on Rotten Potatoes because we wouldn't know what you're doing. On Monday, you're waking up like this, you're doing this. On Tuesday, you know, it was too scary, so I'm putting my bets over here. And on Thursday, I'm going to go ahead and trust in a little bit of money, but I'm going to trust in a little bit of, you know, the girlfriend. I'm going to put my little bit of trust over here in my intelligence, and I'm just going to hedge my bets. And he's saying, that's a life of deception. That's a divided heart. That's a fearful heart, and that's weakness. That's not power. The camp of God is a single-hearted camp. It is unapologetic for what it does, and it does not answer to fear or bullying or any kind of discouragement. It is faithful, it is singular, and it is linear. And he's calling out God's camp compared to Jacob's because God is single-hearted and, and Jacob's is deceived and, and, and scatter-hearted. It's dual-minded. It's, it's the flavor of the day and it's completely ambiguous. And, and the reason why trust, you know, so trust isn't just about honesty. Trust is about alignment because how many, guys, how many guys have ever had a conflict with somebody and they shot you straight with the truth and you actually trusted them more? Because integrity isn't just telling the truth. Integrity is doing the same thing. It is committing to the same thing. And so what, what the scripture is saying is that God is not Jacob and he is not like you and me because God is single-hearted. He has one camp and he's faithful to his covenant to the end. What are we? We're not like him. And, and, and so this is, this is where he is. So he's both a mixed bag. He's fear and he's faith. So he gets to praying, and this is one of the longer prayers that you'll read in Genesis, um, other than the one time with Bethel, Jacob prays again earlier in, in the earlier chapters. But verse nine, it says this, Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. So, I mean, this could have just been a equipping class on prayer. I mean, it just couldn't have been a more rich and thorough and promise-anchored prayer, right in the middle of his fear, he is a mixed bag. He, he's a creature that is both full of faith and full of fear. And so he, here he is, he's praying in the middle of his fear. 
just like you and I do. This is like our Tuesday morning right now. I'm unworthy of all kinds of faithfulness. You have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, uh, but now I have become two camps. But there it is. He's praying to a one-hearted God as a two-camped man. It's fear and faith. And how many of you guys are glad to know that Jacob, Jacob is being uplifted as a patriarch of faith, not because he's changed, but because he's changing. He's changing, right? So you're not changed yet, but you are changing. And your past, past is, is part of your, your present, but it's not defining it. And constantly and continually, it's being redeemed and redefined by the mercy of God. And by his grace and mercy, he is, he is merging these two camps before him until there's nothing of his plans left and only his prayer. This is what he's doing. He's whittling it down at the, at the same time. Two camp man praying to a one camp God. Save me, I pray, for the land uh, hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and I will make you descendants like the sand of the sea and cannot be counted. I'm just learning more and more as a dad and, um, and doing pastor work. I just don't have what it takes. And the only thing that I have, and honestly the thing that I'm more and more ambitious to tell people about in, in, in church and out of church is to learn how to pray. Me and Kyra were in a fight the other day. We don't get it. We're going to fight every five years, so it doesn't really, you know, matter to us, but, you know, just an intense marital fellowship. And uh, I'd like to say I led it, but I didn't, you know, most of the good things. And she says, and she got me, she hit me with that, the best Jesus juke. She said, why don't we stop and pray? And I was like, why don't you stop? No, I was like, <laughs> so, but it's funny, man, we're fickle and the power's not in us. It's in him. And that's why prayer is such a profound thing because it's almost impossible to have fear and, 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 and prayer at the same place. As soon as you pray, God begins to unite your heart. And don't you know, it's not the plans that are gonna fix it, it's the faith. It's the heart that changes. It's the prayer. And so, man, it's like, if you're a husband and you don't know what the heck leading a family even means, you know, just pray. And, and if you're leading a small group, just pray. And when you're done praying, just pray. Because here's the thing, here's, let me just break it down, and this is a John Madden moment, and maybe y'all can relate. The homeschool thing is rough, guys. It's hard, and it's hard. It's rough. And, and it's because there's so many different needs. Like, it's not just one student, right? It's like four different kids, and they all have the different needs, and they're all valid needs, and they conflict with each other, and there's only one mom. You know, that's the deal, right? So they're at home, and it's, it's a big spider web. It's a problem, you know? And... And so then the temptation is, is you're going to get ahead of it with, with your strength. Here's a problem that reminds me of my past. I've been in this situation before. I've let kids down. I hate to let kids down. I'm not going to let kids down this time. I'm going to beat it with my strength. I'm going to beat it with my plans. I'm going to divide my interests, and maybe it'll be a little YouTube, and maybe a little bit of a binder, and maybe a little bit, I'm going to get my plans together, and one of these got to work. And then after a while, you know, you get tired, and then you just pray, right? So, but that's where it starts. That's the whole point. Is he, that's his plan. Is he's waiting until you're done with yours, and then he's like, okay, can I talk now? And you pray. And he unites your heart, right? And he unites your heart with your spouse, with your friend, with your group, okay? With your church. And prayer is, is unity, man. And, 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 so, and, so, and so what happens is, here's, here's what you see. At the end of the day, the plans can't help because the plans are trying to reach the students, but ultimately the students are just operating not as just students and name tags. They're operating as, as names and stories. They're hearts, that need to be transformed. So why is it that when we get on family you know, reunion time that nobody wants to watch the same movies and nobody wants to eat the same food and we're all just fighting over tooth and nail over this like first world, you know, negative one world problems or whatever it is, right? Like we're fighting over these stupid things is because it's not about the plans, it's about the heart and the heart is selfish. And we're in this little family, right? This is, this is me, and my, me and Kyra's story, you apply it to you. But the, the solution isn't to get more organized, the solution is to get more humble. Like the way that our family is gonna be fruitful and the only way it's gonna happen is if we can get united and down humble before the Lord, that's our only chance. So all these plans, they're just kind of like putting on makeup and structures and legal rules and all this kind of thing and it never addresses the true issue. The true issue is that hearts and families don't wanna submit and they don't wanna serve. And so the solution can't be a whiteboard, it has to be prayer. And that's the thing is we're gonna go for kingdom come. Like, well, maybe we have the Airbnb over here and maybe we put the calendar like this and maybe we do it with these kind of pencils and we just frustrate ourselves with all these plans and God's saying, look, it's not in the plans, it's in the prayer. Like, if you have an hour, then pray for 50 minutes. You know, and don't, no, have a plan. I'm not saying don't have a plan. It's just prayer. All right, so it says, verse 13, he spent the night there 
And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. It's a little bit of Noah's Ark, a little bit here, mixed with a little bit of um, uh, Adam having the the animals parade. It's a new creation. Animals are are, are showing the abundance and the fruitful. Look what I did, right? This is what it's saying. Look look at how much I blessed uh, Jacob with, right? And so, but all for the confusion of all the blessing, you can never just receive the blessing. You always have to receive it and then think you took it, give yourself credit for it. And then you've got to keep it the way that you got it and all this kind of stuff that goes on. So he's going to try and use the blessing of God to, um, to create a fake strength of love and respect towards his brother Esau. So he's got all these, these things and he's mistaken, right? The blessing of God for his earning and for his paycheck. And we've talked about that at length of why that is quite the stronghold in Jacob's heart and mind. You know, but... But I, I never, I, I was thinking about it during worship, I never forgot this one time that uh, I heard T.D. Jakes was talking and he said there's a big moment for him as, as, a, as a big name pastor, as somebody that carries a lot of responsibility, you know? He was like, he said he was in some Georgia Dome or whatever and he was preaching to 120,000 people and he said it was powerful and all this stuff is going on, right? And, and he said um, right after he got down from the stage, he got a call that his grandma that he just loved had just passed away. And, and he said, it was a startling feeling, you know, just being a human being, filling a stadium and speaking into this thing of, of experiencing something eternal and something powerful and something that is the power of God, right? And then coming down off the steps and going to the funeral and having only 120 people with him at this funeral. And he was, he was, he was talking about the realization as a, as a young preacher, right? That like all those people in those, in those seats and those stands, they loved T.D. Jake's gift, but they didn't know T.D. Jake's. And they weren't going to be with him at that funeral. And, and so I don't know how it would apply to you. And, and when that Kairos moment, like when that realization and revelation hits you that the things that you have, they can be gone in a second. And none of that acts, adds or takes away from any of your identity. It was only what God decided to give him that he ultimately had. It was only what God gave him. And those things that he, that he received, they were not something that were supposed to be building, building up his identity. They were supposed to be something that reminded him of God's character, that he would have something and keep something that he would always have and never be taken away from him. But these things that Jacob has, that he's throwing his strength, your sense of humor, your organization, all that stuff, you didn't have that. You, you were given that thing. And, you're, and, and now Jacob's using it to project his strength to overcompensate for his weakness. All right, we're coming to the close here. So verse 17, he says, he instructs the one in the lead. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where you are going to and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say they belong to your servant, Jacob. So underscore that, right? The belong word, it belongs to him. That's the mistake. He thinks it belongs to him. That strength is his. That's the reason why, why over here we're in this group is because when we get into the group and we name drop and we talk about what we've done and what we have and we boast in other things other than Christ and Christ crucified and we project our strength with our body language and so forth, it really says something about our theology. It really says not only what we think adds us value, it says what we think offers us atonement. It says what we think ultimately offers our salvation. And he's saying it all starts from the fundamental root belief that this stuff belongs to me, but it doesn't. It never belonged to you. It was always a gift. And you'll have it and you'll steward it, but you own nothing. And he's about to be taken there, naked, alone, and having what he came in there with, nothing but God. And that's all any of us ever really have anyways nothing but God in the first place, right? So he's, he's saying, you're, you're seeing this, this dichotomy, this multi-camp vision that he has. All this stuff belongs to me and I'm gonna use that belonging stuff because it's attached to me and not to God to prove my strength and my autonomy and my um, self-determination. Verse 20, and be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us for he thought I will pacify him. And I mean, this word is just taken straight out of God's speech, both at the beginning of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. God brings peace, not us. It is by him that he brings peace, right? There is no Sabbath except for him, except for him. So he's thinking he's gonna bring the peace with his strength. He's gonna create this reconciliation with his brother by wowing him and by over, over you know, killing him with kindness, right? G- giving him generosity. And with these gifts, I'm sending on ahead later. When I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And this is what, this is what God was waiting for from the beginning. I mean, if you guys have gotten bored of this sermon or this series, this is what God is waiting for this whole time. That night, Jacob got up um, and, uh, and he took his two wives. He took his two female servants and he made a mistake with God because this is exactly what God loves, right? This is the environment. He takes the stuff, right? He takes all the 11 sons, all the animals and the Noah's Ark and the blessing of new creation, verse 23. And after that, he sends them out ahead of him across the stream. He sends them all out 
so that Jacob was left alone. That's where it is, guys, right? Like, at some, at some level, you, you, you know, as a wife, like, you're, you actually have reasonable doubt as to whether or not your husband's actually going to be there for you, like, legit. At some place, you actually have a reasonable doubt that you're ever going to find real community. At some place, you know, your strengths will be exhausted and it'll be like you, you don't have any more charm. You don't have any more reputation. It's all spent. And, and that's not an accident because gifts are not the giver. Grass rises up, lives for a day. Like it never was his and it never was for eternal, right? So ultimately, Jacob leaves and returns with the same thing, nothing. He comes back to this place, the camp of God, the same way he came to the Bethel of God, with nothing. Naked, alone, and afraid, and fragile. And that's who we are, and that's who we always are. That's who, we, that's who J- Jacob always was. So he begins to wrestle. He begins to wrestle with, with God, this mysterious figure, but we're pretty sure he's God based on the job description. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. It was shattered. I mean, that word in Hebrew is just demolished his hip just by touching it. And he wrestles with the man, and then the man says, let me go, for it is daybreak. Jacob is, is, is realizing, and in the next word really, really consolidates the whole thing of, of what his whole life has been about. His whole life, God has not just visited him, God has chased him. God has been pursuing him relentlessly and God has not just given him a gate to enter in, he's given him a camp that follows him. His presence has followed Jacob everywhere he went and he has never left him and he's never forsaken him. But it's not been for the kind of business that Jacob wants to do. You know, God's not giving him you know, cuddles and hugs and wet willies. He's wrestling this dude, man. And he's always been wrestling with him. He's never really been wrestling with Laban. He's never really been wrestling with his wives. He's never really been wrestling with himself. He's been wrestling with God himself. That's who he's been with. And isn't that what it is, right? The emails and the, and the phone calls and the cut short vacations and the evil twisted things we say to one another, what is it other than we're trying to get a blessing that God's trying to give us for free? And isn't it that we're not really wrestling with any of those people and we don't even care about the people we're in the room with or about the people that we hurt in the past. We're interested in the blessing that we don't have right now. And isn't that all that we are ever doing in our life except for wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. And one day, you know, maybe, maybe if we're lucky enough, God will strip all that away he will exhaust us. What is the ministry that he has done over this 20 years? He could have wrestled him at the very beginning, gave him a brand new name, gave him a pat on the back. Go and be awesome in Jesus' name. That's not how it works though because real power comes in human weakness and it takes sometimes some of us a little stubbornness, right? 20 years to get a little weak. It takes 20 years and what has he done? It's not a fancy, complicated, slick ministry plan. The ministry plan is this, according to God, exhaust him till he has no more strength and then bless him. When he's weak, and, and alone, and betrayed, and hurt, and sick, and curled up on the floor, and jobed out, and with no answers other than just desperation, get him down to that surrender place, and then bless him. You ever ask yourself this question on the story? You maybe read it before. Like, what do you mean, like, Jacob won? What kind, in what way did this guy just get sumoed, you know, and poof, touched his hip and exploded? And what do you mean he overcame and had victory? It was like, what does that even mean? You know, um, uh, during COVID days, you know, the kids are basically on screens and sometimes, you know, you got to get them off. And, um, and one of their favorite things to do is wrestle. And sometimes I will get in the mix and I will tell you, I will hurt a kid. So don't let me tell you, I'm worse than God. Probably hurt more than just a hit before, right? Okay. I'm a buck 85, you know, I always play that weight game pretty good because I feel like they don't guess it the right way. I'm about a buck 85 and I could crush a kid. And sometimes I want to, but I don't, you know, what's God doing? It's like, it's not that Jacob was too strong, it's that God was too merciful, and he let Jacob win. And then not only that, he pulls Jacob up and calls him the winner. What kind of a God calls a loser a winner? What kind of a God calls wrong right? What kind of a God calls a cursed person blessed other than the the one that allows that person's sin to kill them and give them victory instead? The one that knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He found that at the basis of life, the core of life, he was always wrestling with God. And that was, even though it was his biggest fear, it was actually his greatest blessing because in wrestling with God, he was always wrestling with grace. In wrestling with grace, he was always wrestling with the cross. And ultimately back then or right now, ultimately we're only wrestling with the one who dies to give us victory. 
That's the message. This is the thing that he has to find. It takes him 20 years to get exhausted enough. He's not saved for awesomeness. He's saved for grace. He's saved for weakness. He's saved for emptiness. He's saved for I have nothing else except what God gives me. And that's enough. And that person's strong. I'm telling you what. I've been around for 36 years. I don't know anyone awesome. My awesome list is zero. Promise you. I I don't even get phased about the news anymore. I'm like, I didn't think that guy was awesome. We all thought he was awesome. I didn't think he was awesome in the first place. My awesome list is short, man. I do know a couple weak people, though. I know a couple people that have cheated on their spouse and found grace and mercy at the bottom of it. I know a couple people that have tested the limits of their physical strength and found God sufficient. And I'll tell you what, I don't know a lot, of, a lot of awesome people. I know some strong people, though, strong in grace. And I don't care, I don't talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm talking about somebody that can look at the promise of God and align their life till kingdom come. It's, it's, you know as well as I, it's not the slick, cool, hipster person. It's the person actually that wears their heart on their sleeve, cries a lot, laughs a lot, and knows the power of God and is serious about God and serious about almost nothing else. That's what he's relentless about. He is ruthless in making Jacob his image. He is ruthless in making Jacob a one-camp man. And taking his divided camp and prayer after prayer and weakness out of weakness, it's not, it's not on accident that he's doing this. It's actually part of the purpose. He didn't leave Jacob and then come back to him. He camped with him until he became one camp. And here's the thing that you just don't say at parties. But just know it and think about it. Is that whole philosophical, philosophical thing, you know, it's like, why do bad things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, like, that's the Job question, right? And here's the answer. Jacob's telling us, full, full disclosure, bad things happen to good people because God's trying to bless them. Because they actually become more blessed after the bad thing than the before it. And they got to get all that awesomeness out of them. And you do too. There's nothing awesome about you. There's nothing slick about you. You're not awesome. You might be blessed, but you're not awesome. And this church is not supposed to be awesome. It's supposed to be powerful and weak in him and boast in weakness and be excited about what I don't know and excited about what I'm embarrassed about and excited about what God rescued me from because I hope that somebody seals I'm a failure that he's awesome. That's what I hope. This is what we need to do, right, in the gospel. So God is lost, but he's won and he's had his way in Jacob. And Jacob finally agrees and he submits and he gets it. Jacob says, will I not let you go until you bless me? It was always you. I just needed somebody to tell me that I was enough, tell me that I was wonderful, tell me somebody that I was beautifully and wonderfully made. Tell me that I was a man made his image. Tell me that I had a purpose. Tell me that I had a blessing. I just needed somebody to do that. And I was, I was looking for it in the job and I was looking for it in the promotion. I was looking for it in the accolade, but you were always the one that I, had, that I needed. You were always the one that had the blessing. I know it now. I get it. It took me 20 years. You couldn't have done it in a conference. You had to do it in the dark. You had to do it in the lonely moment. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Really, the language breaks down. It's just a, it's a switch of the, of the two different stems. Jacob's word, it means deceiver and really wrestles with God or, or fights God, you know? But, but Israel, it just switches it and, and it says fight in God, but instead of fights God, it actually says God fights. God fights. So what do these people know, right? These ones that are thin and weathered in the Lord and weathered in Jesus, they're looking in your eyes and you're going... Listen, this story is not about me fighting. It's about God fighting for me on my behalf. I'm the one who used to be fighting God, and I found out that God the whole time was fighting for me, that he was wrestling for me, that he came to give me something for free. And we are always weak and always divided, always fearful and always fickle until we come to the terms that we are not awesome but weak in his hands, and he is powerful in his mercy. He's so powerful in his grace, and he's the one that has fought for me. And may that be what's the twinkle in your eye. May that be the bounce in your step. May that be the thing you boast in, not that I'm strong, that he's strong in me. And then he has fought for me and he has not given up in his relentless pursuit of me. Jacob said, please tell me your name. He replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him right there. What Jacob always had, he gave it and reminded it to him. So Jacob called the place Penel saying, I saw God face to face and I was spared. So verse 31, do you know somebody that lives with a lamp, who leads with a lamp, who, who, who walks with that weakness? Are you becoming that kind of person? The sun rose above him and he passed Peniel and he, he was limping for the rest of his life. It was that sweet limp. It was that broken thing that he always knew that, that he, his, his life was not to be, to be strong, but rather to be weak in Jesus. In verse 32, therefore to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Just a couple of um, intentional questions here uh, that you might take a picture of um, for group or for discussion. But the big question is just this, where is God's power being made perfect 
in your weakness. Yeah, you have strengths. Like, those are good things. And work in your strength. And don't work in something you're not good at. And don't be fake humble. You know what I mean? Like, like humility, humility is not as much about thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself. It's realizing that I have strengths. I'm just not putting my trust in the strengths. I'm not going to go and just consolidate my life so I'm only doing things I'm strong at. I'm going to lean out into weakness. I love persecution. I love insults. I love going to people that don't like me and honor me and encourage me because that's where I know God's going to use his power. I love it when somebody, somebody finds something bad about me or, or, or kind of like an uh, idiosyncrasy or calls me. I, I hope they don't see awesomeness in me because it's not about that, right? So this is the idea is that like he's not being fake humble. He's being wise that I would spend more of my time in the truth, which is the truth of me is God fought for me and that's the only fighting that I have. That's all that I have to offer this world is the fact that God fought for me and me telling that story. So where is God's power being made perfect in your weakness? I'll invite the band to come forward. I'm just gonna read these questions. Holy Spirit, visit us on these questions and maybe he'll answer the question right here in your heart. Here's the first question. How is, how is awesomeness, how is pride, how is strength keeping you from real identity? How is awesomeness, how is the spin the reputation, the streak, the good streak. How has that gotten in the way of your grace, of your identity? Number two, how has your fear, or does it continually, the fear of the past, the fear that they're catching up with you, they're gonna find out in just a moment, you're not as cool as you want them to believe. How is that creating a false sense of strength are you tired today? Usually it's because God hasn't given you enough strength. It's because you've committed to too many things and you've divided up your camp in too many places. And you're tired, but here's the thing. You're not tired enough yet. And the good news and the bad news is he's going to keep on coming after you until you're exhausted. Until you have nothing else and you're going to find him in your weakness, not in your strength. But lastly, what does the power of the cross look like in your weakness? I want to invite you to stand. And um, Tom's going to lead us off in prayer. But um, Lord Jesus, have your way. Speak to us in only the way that you can. Meet us here and camp with us, Lord. We so desperately need your presence that you would break us and change us and build us up in your name instead of ours. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.